Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here with us. I'm Peter Gettler. I'm the president of the Cato Institute. Last year at this time, I was, uh, well, metaphorically, since we're in Chicago, sitting where you're sitting. Um, it was actually quite literally true in New York. It was about almost exactly a year ago I attended a Cato event at the Waldorf in New York. And uh, afterwards, John Allison came up to me and said, I had uh, been a Cato donor for 15 years and had joined the board a couple of months before. And John Allison came up to me and said, Peter, I have an idea to get you more engaged in Cato. And uh, this was his idea. So now I'm a full-time employee of Cato. Um, if someone comes up to you today and says, I have an idea to get you more engaged in Cato, um, don't be alarmed. The worst that will happen is they might ask you for money. But, uh, but they're not going to ask you to be an employee, I don't think. Um, anyway, it's been a great, uh, great seven, eight months now. Um, I was thinking today that uh, on the 4th of July, it's July 2nd, right before the long weekend, I sent an email out to the staff just wishing everyone a happy Independence Day. And I mentioned the fact that uh, throughout most of my life, on the July 4th, I actually sat down and read the Declaration of Independence because I thought Jefferson's uh, exposition of, uh, of natural rights was so inspiring. And this is a tradition that I gave up in my probably mid to late 30s, maybe 40, because I found that the, uh, uh, the list of, uh, of uh, abuses and usurpations perpetuated on the colonists by the king and by the British government was much shorter than the abuses and usurpations inflicted upon me by my own government on a daily basis. And this began to get pretty depressing because it sure seems like we're up against some really big challenges, which is one of the reasons that Cato exists and that, uh, that we're here and, and, and you're here. Um, but I think we need to keep some perspective about how bad we have it. Um, I don't think we have it all that bad in comparison to the people who founded this country. And the founding of this country really was a libertarian event. It was founded on the, the cornerstone values that Cato represents of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. And it was uh, 238 years ago today, I think I've got that math right, December 2nd, 1777, that Lydia Dara, who was a woman who lived a Quaker in Philadelphia, and at this time the British were occupying Philadelphia, and her house was used to quarter British officers, but they had no place to go, so they were allowed to stay. And the legend has it, don't know if it's true or not, it's not corroborated, but that on December 2nd, she overheard a meeting where the British were planning a surprise attack on Washington and his army, Continental Army, were outside of Philadelphia. And the next day, she uh, used the excuse of needing to cross British lines to procure some flour in order to uh, um, have justification for this errand. And she, long story short, she met an officer of the Continental Army and warned them that there was a British attack was going to take place on the December 4th and 5th of 1777. Uh, needless to say, now the Continental Army being, being prepared, when the British attacked, there were just a series of skirmishes over a few days that were repulsed. The British gave up, went back to Philadelphia. Less than two weeks later, the Continental Army encamped at Valley Forge, and we all know the stories from when we were children about the deprivations and, and the, uh, the challenges that they faced that winter. And when you think of the challenges that we're up against um, in battling Leviathan in the United States, to me, those challenges, as big as they are, and as significant as they are, and as difficult as they're going to be to meet, seem to pale in comparison to what the founders of this country achieved in 
uh, bequeathing us this country that uh, really was founded on libertarian values. And uh, it seems to me that uh, they did the hard work. And our job, while it's hard, is easier than theirs. We have to recapture um, the libertarian country that, uh, that they bequeathed to us. And that's what the work of, uh, of Cato is all about. Um, I've, never, I've been to Chicago now three times since I joined Cato, but I haven't yet visited, and I plan to tomorrow, the Heald Square Monument, which is, um, I think, just south of the river, um, across the river from the Trump, from the Trump Hotel. And in the, in the, in the uh, park, there's a, in the square, there's a monument, and it's George Washington. And behind him are uh, Chaim Solomon and Robert Morris. And uh, they were seen as the financier, financiers who made the revolution possible. And uh, to me, that's just a great representation of the partnership that exists between uh, the staff at Cato, who I supported uh, through donations for many years, and uh, all the supporters that we have in this room today. The, the sponsors of Cato uh, who make our work possible are, uh, uh, are indicated by red, red name tags. And uh, they still allow me to wear a red name tag, so I still am required to cut checks every year. Um, but uh, you make our work possible, and we're very appreciative of that. And as we head towards the end of the year, and I know many people are developing their, uh, um, their charitable giving plans. We would uh, be most appreciative if you could keep Cato and our work and uh, the important work we provide um, in, uh, in trying to roll back, roll back the state and uh, defend and advance liberty in the United States and, and around the world. Um, again, we uh, couldn't be more appreciative of the generous people and pat people who are passionate about Cato and our mission and about liberty. Who, uh, who do make the, the Institute possible. So uh, thank you for being here and thanks for your, for your generosity. Um, I visited Cuba twice and um, I visited many, I've traveled around the world met with uh, people working to advance freedom in various places. Two countries where I've been where you're not really allowed to meet with people working for freedom because it's too dangerous for them are uh, Iran, where I visited a little over a year ago and, and Cuba I visited twice. And the last time I visited Cuba, you kind of have to go on a group tour. And uh, the group was composed, I would say, half of uh, lefties who were there to see the glories of the revolution. And on the first day, we're having lunch. And um, one of the gentlemen in the group sits down and he says, wow, we can tell from this place that communism doesn't work. And uh, we know from our own country that capitalism doesn't work. And I'm thinking, oh, man, so I have a week to work on this guy, but this... <laughs> This is a big mountain to climb. And um, God, I, I think that couldn't be more wrong. Uh, when you think of, uh, we, we are living, in my view, um, notwithstanding all the challenges of big government and, and different problems in the world, we're, we're living in the, the best time to be alive as a human being, as, uh, as far as I can tell. And um, that uh, is one of the reasons why our, our collective work is so important, because that it's freedom that has created that prosperity, free enterprise, capitalism. Um, it's amazing to me that people can't see that. Um, but uh, to continue the, uh, the trend of prosperity that we've enjoyed since, uh, since freedom and self-government began to flourish a couple hundred years ago, um, we need to, uh, to keep government in uh, as small a box as, as we can. And um, over 200 years ago, Malthus um, pub first published his essay on population. And um, that's when I kind of marked the beginning of all these apocalyptic pr uh, predictions that we've been living with since. 
uh, and I'm sure we could go well, well earlier than Malthus. Um, but human nature, probably because of the way we evolved to perceive and deal with threats, um, we always perceive um, really nasty things around the corner, um, apocalyptic uh, predictions, whether it's uh, global uh, defense threats, whether it's environmental threats, whether it's economic threats. And uh, I'm reminded of uh, when I was in college, in my fraternity, we occasionally had fire drills. The fire alarm would go off in the middle of the night. And we realized that you know, less than half of the people were in, in the street for the fire drill. And one of my, uh, my fraternity brothers said, you know, for the amount of times it's actually been a fire, I'm going to stay in bed. And um, that's the way I feel about all these threats. Um, I've heard about you know, these uh, dire predictions that have been made my entire life. And until one actually comes true, I'm not really going to worry about it because of the great faith in technology and human ingenuity and progress to deal with whatever threats may, may arise. And it's really important that we uh, tell that story because one of the great uh, engines for the growth of government and the state is to deal with all these uh, significant uh, threats or uh, apocalyptic pre uh, predictions that we, uh, that we hear. Our first speaker, Ron Bailey, who we're proud to have as an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and is the uh, science editor for Re the Reason Foundation, um, has published through Cato um, a uh, you know, brilliant book called The End of Doom, which if you haven't read it, I would encourage you all to read it, which is a, uh, a devastating critique and I think disposal of, uh, of many of the, the threats, whether it's population, environmental threats that um, people are claiming we're, uh, we're facing. And I think Ron's work is a uh, very convincing, uh, convincing uh, affirmation of what I said earlier, that there's never been a better time to be alive as a human being. So Ron. Good morning. I'm delighted to be here at Cato, and I thank Peter for those nice introductory remarks. And I only have 30 minutes, and we have a lot of data to go through. So let's, let's begin the, the, the story, if you will. First of all, what kind of capitalist would I be if I did not point out that I'm going to be selling books later, after the talk, in the next room, and it makes a wonderful holiday gift? You can't have too many copies. Um, and it's been endorsed by the Sierra Club. So, you know, you, you know, it must be true. I particularly enjoyed, it's refreshing to read and blah, 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 but my favorite thing is, but the book is overly packed with studies and statistics. Overly packed. Way too much science, I'm afraid. In any case, uh, the title is The End of Doom, is after the book, and here's a representation, if you will, of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And those are typically known as famine, war, pestilence, and death. The good news is all four of them are in massive retreat over the last century or so. With regard to war, Steven Pinker has brilliantly argued in The Better Angels of Our Nature that your chances of being killed by your fellow human being is lower than at any other time in human history. Violence is in retreat, despite what the bad news we do see still coming around the world. Uh, with regard to famine, food has never been more abundant and available than it is today. And calories, which I'll be showing later, uh, per capita, have massively increased over that period of time. Uh, with regard to pestilence, disease is in massive retreat as well, uh, thanks to vaccinations and, and antibiotics and, and sanitation, most incredibly important, and, and, and so forth. And even death is also in retreat. At the beginning of the 20th century, average life expectancy on planet Earth 
was about 35 years, and now it's about 70 years. So in fact, all four horsemen of the apocalypse are in retreat. So the way I've organized my talk is four topics, uh, and I call them the horsemen of uh, modern abundance, peak population, peak farmland, peak pollution, peak nothing. And we'll get to what that means. Now this fellow here, many of you may be familiar with him, is Paul Ehrlich, a wonderful, I understand, ecologist, butterfly biologist at Stanford University who happened to write a little book called The Population Bomb in 1968 where he made this prediction. Didn't happen. Millions didn't starve to death in the 1970s. In the fullness of time, I was working at Forbes magazine and I had occasion to call him up and ask him what had happened to his predictions. And at the time, this was about 1990, he assured me, Ron, my predictions are still going to come true. I got my timing wrong. Uh, what's going to happen then, Paul? He said, the famines are going to break out between 2000 and 2010. It is now 2015. But he's still at it. You have a good story. You keep going with it. You can't, you know, the same old song. This is something that he wrote in 2013 in the prestigious journal, the Proceedings of the, Nas of the uh, Royal Academy uh, Biology, where he basically says that overpopulation is still there. But he also says that the socioeconomic political arrangements are also the problem. Trust me, the socioeconomic political arrangements that he's talking about are, is democratic capitalism. He, he still hates that, but he's still wrong. Now, what happened over time? Well, what happened is, is that uh, human fertility has been declining over planet Earth over this period of time. These are some actual trends plus some projections that are, that are for 2050. And around 1970, the average woman on planet Earth had two point, I'm sorry, had about five or six children per woman over her course of her life, and it's now down to about 2.4 per woman over the course of her life. There are 85 countries, out of the 212 that the World Bank looks at, there are 85 countries where the population, the fertility rate is below replacement of 2.1 at this point, and it continues to fall. Now, why might that be? Why are we having this particular trend? Why did the population bomb not go off? Well, these are some other projections, by the way, and this is the, the UN every two years puts out what they call their population revision. And usually what they do is uh, provide uh, a medium, uh, a high, and a low. And this is the medium, and mostly people take that to be what the actual projections is. As it turns out, this is the actual course. Every time, almost every time they come out, it turns out the world population is on that low projection. If that's the case, the world population will peak in the middle of the century and begin to go down by the end of the century. Now, why would that, what's going on? There are a number of wonderful trends that go on with that. Um, these, by the way, is another analysis by the uh, International Institute for Systems Analysis, which says this should be the trend as well. Um, and what you find is the correlation, total fertility versus GDP, it turns out that if you're poor, you have five, six, seven children, and if you are, if you're making about 10,000 or more, you have below two on average. That's one correlation. This is another way of looking at it. This is what's called the Human Development Index, which includes literacy, life expectancy, and, and income as well. And what you see again is that when you are high on all of those things, people have fewer children. There are a lot of reasons for why this is going on. There's no particular demographic theory, uh, general theory, but what, one of the things that I found absolutely fascinating 
uh, is uh, some research done by some social anthropologists that pointed out that when women uh, can expect to live only between 40 and 50 years, they have five or six children. In countries where they can only live, their life expectancy is 40 to 50 years. They live 50 to 60 years, they go down to three children or so. 60 to 70, it's two children, two or three children, and over 70, it's below two children. What this means is it's signaling all kinds of things, is that these women are living in societies that are stable, that have rising incomes, where they are given uh, choices, and they can invest in the children that they do have. They actually expect that the children they have will live. So if you believe that the world trends are going to improve, that world economy, despite the setbacks that we occasionally encounter, is going to improve over the 21st century, what you're going to find is that population, uh, total fertility rate continues to go down. This is good news. I know some people are worried about declining population, but what, what's the most important thing is people get to choose the number of children they want to have. That is actual real freedom. And so this, this is some more data. This is from a study done by folks at the Spanish Foundation for Science and Technology. What you find, again, is the low trend is, seems to be the one that's going. And th this actually is uh, by a demographer at the Deutsche Bank who basically says that we're going to get the world, the planet Earth is going to get from 2.4 right now to below 2.1 children per woman over the course of their life in about 15 years. That we, that if all these things come true, world population will peak between 8 and 9 billion in the middle of the century and perhaps decline back as far as 6 billion by the end of the century. Again, voluntarily, people will be choosing to do this. Who is this man? Who is Norman Borlaug? Does anyone know? Right. This is Norman Borlaug. He's the father of the Green Revolution. I had a great privilege of getting to know him uh, over the course of my life. We even become, I guess, uh, pretty good friends. And I also basically point out he's the man who probably saved more human lives than any single human being in all of human history, period. He is a great hero of mine. Uh, and he was the father of the Green Revolution. And as a result of that, we are now at the point of, of peak uh, farmland. This is work done by Jesse Osable, who is at the Rockefeller uh, Center for, for uh, Human Environment Program. And basically what he finds is that right now, because of the productivity that people like Borlaug and his successors have been able to do, we are now at the point where we are going to be withdrawing from nature, where humanity is going to produce more and more food on less and less land over time. Um, in fact, if we can get this, is, I've talked to Jesse about this, if we could get rid of bioethanol subsidies, if we can get rid of them all over the planet, 400 million acres of land could be restored to nature by the end, by, by 2060. Um, at, and that's an area twice the size of the United States east of the Mississippi. And why? Again, it's because crop yields uh, have more than tripled over that period of time for the main crops. And what we find is the yields are still increasing. And this is, this is an absolutely critical point. We don't really need any new technologies to feed the world. This is what you have here for in Africa. These are the productivity levels, and this is what is happening in the United States. If you could apply the technologies, the institutions, property rights, free markets, and so forth, you could fill that gap, and it would be able to, to feed the world. As, um, a colleague of Jesse Osable has pointed out is, if you could get the world's farmer producing calories at the same rate American farmers do, we could feed the world 10 billion people on less than half the farmland we currently use. So we are at peak farmland. 
Uh, now, food prices have gone up, so is food becoming more scarce over time? Uh, the answer is, is somewhat complicated, and it did run up. We've been in the midst of a commodity boom in the last 10 years or so, and, uh, the, and what has happened is it's now coming back down again. It's still 33% above what it was before the, before the increase was going, but it's now declining. Part of the problem, again, are those bioethanol subsidies. We are spending a lot of money on farmland that would otherwise be used to feed people. But, the, the, but nevertheless, farmers are catching up. Uh, as prices go up, what do farmers do? They produce more food over time. Um, and the result is, as you can see, the amount of calories per capita has been going up quite considerably over that time. The good news that the World Bank just reported is, is that for the first time in all of human history, fewer than less than 10% of the world's population will be living in absolute poverty. Absolute poverty is now defined about uh, living on less than $2 a day per person over that period of time. That absolute poverty uh, 25 years ago was 40% of the world's population. There's been a massive improvement in the human condition over the last 30 years or so. Uh, again, to, to highlight the point about um, uh, peak farmland, if we had maintained our agricultural productivity at this level, basically 1960s level, we would have had to use this much more area. Essentially, this is what the amount of land would have had to plow down in order to feed the world's current population of about 7.4 billion people. We would have had to plow down a 3 billion more hectares, basically the area twice South America. There's not that much farmland in the world. The famines that Ehrlich would, would, uh, was predicting would have occurred, except he didn't take into account human ingenuity and free markets. And he never does. <laughs> so the result is, is we are, as I say, withdrawing from nature. Again, what we're finding is, is that there are these thresholds, income thresholds like this, in fact, the, the, that's even lower now. There was a new report out put out by the Food and Agriculture Organization earlier this summer. That every five years, they do a forest assessment. The threshold now for, the, the, for, for forest deforestation to stop and reforestation to start is now $4,200 per capita. So in countries where you find that level of income, what you find for, for the most part is that forests start returning. Again, that's a signal that property rights are secure, that farmers are using modern technologies, that you're getting greater productivity off the land that you have, and that people are moving into cities again. Uh, so basically, this is an example of what we call the environmental Kuznets curve. This is an idea is that when, you, when people are living in very poor places, when they're beginning the process of development, um, the first thing they worry about is getting food on the table, getting a roof over their heads, their kids educated, getting access to some medicine, that kind of thing, San sanitation. And they don't really worry so much about air pollution, water pollution, the state of the forest around them, uh, whatever. And so they, they go up the income curve over time. Eventually, however, they get wealthy enough, they start going, right, you know, this place is it's smelly, it's full of crap, we've got to fix this stuff. And so what you find is that there are thresholds when people get to certain levels of income, they start demanding improvements in environmental quality over time. And so what you, so what you end up with is what we have, the, peri the period of environmental improvement uh, over that period. And again, there are various thresholds and they seem to be getting lower over time as countries go. But I'll give you an example of how this works in, works in the United States. Uh, this is data from the EPA, so you know it must be true. Um, 
in any case, what you find here is that over this period, the economy more than tripled, and the air pollutants that they regulate, things like sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, ozone, and so forth, declined by 60%. While people drove more, the energy was used more, the population increased by 50%, pollution went way, way down. What is possible is, is that if you get wealthier, you can demand environmental improvement. So I have a statement. Anything that slows down environmental improvement, anything that slows down economic growth will slow down environmental renewal. If you slow that process down, you make people poorer over time and they live in a worse environment. If you want to save the environment, figure out how to get them wealthy. And we know the way to do that. Ah, the next question of global warming. Uh, Pat Michaels is here. You may want to talk to him about this, uh, on this topic. Um, I have been covering this for a very long time. I've, I started reporting on global warming when I was a reporter at Forbes magazine back in the late 1980s. And I would, uh, thanks to reason, I, as a freelancer, I, I uh, went to the uh, Rio Climate Change Conference, the Earth Summit, where the UN uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change was at first negotiated. And I've been following it for a long time. I was very skeptical initially because I had written an earlier book called EcoScam, where I had identified, if you will, I, the, the fact that environmentalism was more of an ideology than it was based on science. We can go into that if you're interested later. And so when global warming came along, I was very skeptical of it, thinking, well, it's just one of those other things. It's like overpopulation, renewable resources. We're, it was one of those things. And I was in good company. In 1992, the National Academy of Sciences had a report out which stressed the uncertainties with regard to the trajectory of global warming. So it, it was reasonable to be skeptical of it. Over the fullness of time, I've slowly but surely come to the conclusion that it is like, that it's possible that future uh, man-made climate change could become a problem for humanity, and we can discuss that. But it's a balance of the evidence test. It is not a uh, beyond a reasonable doubt test for me. It's a balance of the evidence, and if the evidence comes the other way, I will be more than happy to recant, say I was wrong, that I was bamboozled, and I'll change my mind. Please let us hope that comes true. But in any case, here's some data. That, that is going on here. These are the satellite versus the surface trends. They're basically four different groups that, that uh, provide surface data, uh, basically land and sea data, and then there are two groups that provide satellite data uh, on this. And what you see is, in fact, the temperatures have been drifting upwards uh, since 1979. It starts in 1979 because that's when the satellites started measuring the, the temperature in the troposphere. And what we find here, though, is it kind of has flattened out recently. For the last 18 years or so, uh, the increase in the temperature has been very slow uh, over, over that period of time. In fact, it's been about uh, a third, maybe a quarter, of what the climate models have been predicting, which is a problem. Um, because this hiatus, this pause, is considered to be such a controversial issue, there's a lot, a lot of research going on. There are probably five studies every other week coming, every week actually coming out on this topic. And this is one that came out in June where uh, researchers at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, did some reanalysis of, 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 uh, of various temperature data sets, including temperature data uh, measured at the sea surface and so forth, and they claim to have discovered that, in fact, there was no diminution in the rate of increase. There are some interesting problems here because while they may f not find this in the surface data, 
it doesn't really affect what's going on in the tropospheric data, which is measured uh, essentially every day by the satellites. As I say, quite controversial. Um, again, this is the, the, the data from, the, I particularly like the data that comes from University of Alabama Huntsville. They're the satellite people that I usually report. And again, what you find is it's kind of flattened out, but it's going up re more recently. Um, they reported that oct this October was in fact the hottest October in the record that they've been keeping since 1979. And you're already seeing the headlines that 2015 is likely to be the warmest year in the, in the, in the surface temperature data uh, ever, uh, which would mean ever from 1860 to now. So, the big question is, are the models right? Are they actually making predictions? And so, again, it's a controversy. What you get here is from the IPCC, and they've done this nice little analysis, and they basically say, well, see, it's, this is basically the interval of the, of the various models, uh, say about 100 models or so, and it's still within the envelope. So they're going, yeah, we're, we're okay. It's not perfect, but it's not so bad. But then the folks at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, what they find is when they run the data against the same models and what they, whoops, giving away my secrets here, go back. All right, there we go. What you find here is that these models are all running much hotter, and I've already mentioned that since uh, basically they go back to a four-year average from 79 to 83. And what you find is, I love this, over 95% of the climate models agree, the observations must be wrong. Hmm. And a schematic of what this is going on from the folks at, at the University of Alabama is the following. Again, uh, two, three, four times faster than the actual data seems to be showing. Um, and it's not just the folks at the uh, University of Alabama who are making this claim. This is also satellite data. This is a group called Remote Sensing Systems. And again, what you find is here, the actual observations are falling outside the model simulations. And this is for the tropics. Again, the same thing. But they seem to be more or less right for the, 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 the polar regions, the North Pole. In, uh, in fact, the polar region seems to be warming at two to three times the rate of the rest of the planet, which is something that the models had, had projected would be occurring. But moving from that vexed topic to peak everything. Um, you may have heard uh, that, we may be, that we're running out of things. This was something that I'd covered for a long time. Um, this is one of my favorite guys, and a guy named Richard Heinberg, who wrote Beyond the Limits to Growth, and as you can see, the world is at, nearing, past a point, and we're basically running out of everything. It's, it's all over, folks. And he, he would argue that very strongly. Uh, this is my favorite one, by the way. We may have, you remember peak oil, everyone? Okay. This one uh, is Kenneth Deffies, who wrote a very well best-selling book. I, I aspire to his numbers, but doubt that I get it on sales. But you could help today. Uh, in any case, he said that Thanksgiving Day, world oil production would peak. So I happened to look it up. World oil production around Thanksgiving Day in 2005 was 85 million barrels per day. It is 96 million barrels per day now, about 13% more. Whoops. So what, we, what has happened is we can see these price spikes come along over time. And this is part of something that is, uh, and I go into some detail in the book, 
what some economists call commodity supercycles that we experience over time. And essentially what you end up with are spikes over time. Uh, and these spikes are related to the areas of the world that are rapidly industrializing. There are four or five of these depending. I mean, what you can see is, if you go in the data, that prices go up for all kinds of commodities. As the United States industrializes, Germany and Western Europe industrializes, Japan industrialized, and now as China's industrialized. And what you see is the prices go up. Well, the response for most innovators and entrepreneurs, of course, is that you, what do you do? You start providing more of the stuff. You search for more of the minerals. You provide new technologies. You begin to economize. And so you get the cycles. And the, the, the news about super cycles is, is that the next trough, when you get to the next trough, the prices are, are lower than the last trough. Things are, in fact, trending downward and getting cheaper over time. Will this occur this time? I would argue it probably will. Uh, Leonard Malgari at the Belfort Center, an oil man from uh, the Italian firm Eni, basically thinks that we're going to get up to 110 million barrels per day of oil. Uh, this is Limits to Growth, published in 1972, the year I entered college. My professors taught this to me. The world was going to be coming to an end. And this is, they have a very handy little chart in the middle where they basically say, this is what will happen to all known reserves at current consumption rates by the year 2000. All of these were going to be gone before I, before I turned 50. What happens? Well, if you look at the US Geological Survey, they put out data all the time and they tell you what the reserves are. None of them have gone out. Of, uh, we still have plenty of them. Natural gas, 120 years? Anyway, so basically, I hope that everybody recognizes this fellow, one, also one of my great heroes, and a former adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, Julian Simon. Julian Simon had a very famous bet with Paul Ehrlich, the first guy I was talking about, where Simon got to pick um, no, where Ehrlich got to pick five, a basket of five medals, nominally worth $1,000 in 1980, and the bet was is that Ehrlich said it's going to go much more up in prices because we're running out of stuff, and Simon said, no, it's not. It's going to go down, and so the bet was is they'd pay the difference on who was right. Well, in 1990, uh, Ehrlich sent a check. Uh, that was it. No nice note or anything. A check for $567 dollars. Uh, to, to Simon, which basically meant that, in real terms, the, the, the metals picked by Ehrlich himself had gone down in value by more than 50%. Uh, I do do an analysis in the book where I do re reproduce the same bet. Uh, if Simon had picked the same, if the, if the metals basket had been picked in 2003 and had gone to 2013, Simon would have lost by about $2,300. So you have to pick your point on the super cycle carefully when you're making these kind of bets. But in any case, what, to give evidence of the super cycle, we have already hit the peak on a lot of prices of these particular metals, and they are now going down. And you can see the commodity price index is already heading down in this direction as well. And how far it will go, I, I am not a commodities trader, so I'm not going to make any predictions. And if you take any financial advice out of me, God help you. But, <laughs> but I think that this is probably going to be going further down. So. This is the real question, I think. Is it realistic to predict that knowledge accumulation is so powerful as to outweigh the physical limits of physical capital services and limited substitution possibilities for natural resources? That is the crucial question. 
And my answer is yes, human ingenuity combined with markets will most likely solve any of the problems that I've listed here and, and any of the other ones I discuss in my book. So in conclusion, <laughs> postponed again, goddammit. Anyway, thank you very much and I'd be happy to take any questions you might have. I just love that image, so I'm going to keep it up. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, so yes, I think they have a microphone coming. What do you make of the whole uh, organic food, you know, scare that they're saying we need to go to organic and the chemicals are going to kill us? And um, I, I, I. I accept the broad scientific consensus that, that uh, and I have a whole chapter on this, that uh, nobody has gotten so much as a cough, sneeze, sniffle, bellyache from eating genetically modified food. And as far as organic goes, uh, if, if you tried to make the entire world go in organic production, essentially you would have to increase the amount of farmland currently used to feed the world by a third to 50% because the crops are simply not that productive. Um, where you would get the nitrogen to do that is anyone's guess as well. Um, it, as far as it goes, I'm not going to tell people they can't eat organic or anything. If they want to do that, that's fine. But they should not be deluding themselves into thinking that they're doing something nice for the planet. That's the way I would think. <laughs> no other questions? Uh, in the back? Yeah. Oh. Uh, you made the comment that the environmental movement is ideological. Uh, my impression of them, having battled them over the excess deer population at the Indiana Dune State Park, which is about 50 miles east of here, is that it's a pagan religion yeah. in which man is the devil, except themselves, of course. And uh, I don't think they have any good ideas for the average American, because I, I, my impression of them is yeah. that they regard the, the standard of living for the average American is unsustainable and therefore needs to be reduced, and I think... Uh, that will be the effort out of Rome, uh, out of uh, Paris, in, in terms of the ultimate impact. If they get their way, is dramatic declines in the the quality of life for the average American or average sure. European or Japanese or South Korean. I have absolutely no doubt that some portion of the of the movement is exactly as you describe it. I. I sort of make my living by, I'm going to be at the Paris conference, for example, uh, starting uh, next week, and I make part of my living by hanging out with people who hate me, so. Uh, I, I, I've met the, the sort of people you're describing, certainly. Uh, the, but I guess what, and let's face it, there's another, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Naomi Klein. She's written a book called This Changes Everything, uh, The Climate Versus Capitalism, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, and basically, she, ba she makes flat out the argument, thank goodness this came along because we can finally get rid of capitalism. She makes no bones about it. She is willing to court the destruction of the world because she thinks that she can get the world that she would prefer of, I don't know, small farming communities or something, but nevertheless have jets to take her to conferences. I, I don't know. But uh, yes, I think that there is a portion of that. But on the other hand, you have to think that there are at least some people uh, who think of themselves as green, who do want to do something, you know, we'll just call them moderate people, who think that what they want is cleaner air, more forest, that kind of thing. And I think they're being misled 
bind these people into these policies. And what we have to do is to lead them back to show how free markets, in fact, make for a cleaner environment, a healthier world, and that we really need to go in that direction if we want to, quote, save the planet. And that this other process, we've already tried it, top-down regulation, and it doesn't work. It makes things more likely to be worse. The other thing is I'm hoping that somebody will explain to them that, why, that, um, that government, here's the thing about climate change you have to think about. You should always ask your quest, your quest, the following question when you're thinking about anybody, anything with regard to the policy of climate change. Is what government likely to do about climate change worse than climate change? And if your answer is possibly yes, back off. Yes. What were your reactions to President uh, Obama's uh, comments uh, during his um, interview at the Paris uh, Climate Conference with regard to Miami as an example where the uh, seas were rising, fish were going to be uh, running through the streets, and this was already happening? And then secondly, in the New York Times this morning, there's an article about the Marshall Islands and uh, the impact that uh, seas rising are happening are, are, are having on, on that, uh, uh, that land. Thanks. Uh, of the problems that are likely to occur from uh, global climate change, I mean, if the world gets warmer, whether mankind is doing it or not, it's probably going to melt glaciers and the seas are going to rise. Uh, it, over, the past, over the 20th century, average sea level on planet Earth probably went up between six and nine inches, you know, on average. Did anyone notice? Um, they th probably not, because what people do is they adapt over time. It's a very slow process. Uh, one of the things that the, uh, the IPCC itself basically suggests that as much sea level rise as you might see over the next century or so would be 11 inches, so two inches more than the planet experienced in the 20th century. Uh, it's a problem, but it's not a crisis is the way I would answer it. Uh, Miami is still going to be there, and I wouldn't sell my beachfront property just yet. Um, I have a red blinking light coming up, so another two more questions. <coughs> Whether or not uh, climate change is actually taking place, uh, would you agree that carbon dioxide has nothing to do with it? I would not agree with that. Uh, the physics are fairly clear, as I understand it, from all the scientists I've ever talked to about it, is that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and that if left to itself, uh, you double the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, it would increase the average um, uh, temperature about one degree centigrade over time. The question is, are the feedbacks that are in the models correct? They are the ones that are amplifying that particular trend. So. Uh, Unless there's some other data that I'm not aware of, the physics I understand are not in question, that carbon dioxide left to itself would, in fact, as a greenhouse gas, increase average temperatures. Anyway, my blinking light is off, and I will be happy to chat with you all when you're buying my books later. Thank you. <laughs>
Um, but, you know, this story is so important because these manufactured crises are always excuses for somebody to do something, somebody being government, politicians happy to comply, bureaucrats happy to comply, we're going to do something, we're going to regulate. Um, and, uh, you know, very important, important point that I th think you alluded to, that the people who get, you know, it's not the uh, group that I saw in the paper uh, dining at L'Amboisie in Paris the other night that are going to be hurt by all these regulations. It's the most vulnerable people who are hurt by uh, slowdowns in economic activity, economic growth, raising prices because of regulation intended to address environmental issues. Um, speaking of regulation, I have many friends who fashion themselves free marketers who uh, think the idea of regulation without recourse to the political branches of government is a bad idea, that uh, discretionary power in the hands of government not uh, accountable to the, to the voters is a bad idea, top-down economic planning is a bad idea. But somehow when we wrap all these things together and package them at the Federal Reserve, they don't really seem to be bothered by, uh, by all these things. And uh, they say that the first um, step in dealing with addiction is to admit you've got a problem. And one of the primary objectives of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives is to uh, first and foremost convince those would-be free marketers that we do indeed have a problem. Um, and that there are many, uh, that I, I actually get in debates with friends who don't see our monetary system as a problem because they say we have bigger, bigger problems like government spending, et cetera, and they don't realize that um, you know, fiat money, money system is the enabler of so many of these things that they see as, as big problems. George Selgin left a tenured position at the University of Georgia along with his motorcycle, I think, was also left in, in Georgia because the roads in Washington, D.C. are not as amenable to, uh, to motorcycle riding on the weekends. Uh, but his dog, Penelope, was allowed to come. Um, so George joined Cato. He had been an adjunct scholar for many years, but joined Cato uh, last year, 2014, to, uh, to establish and uh, begin operation of the, of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, one of the uh, foremost monetary economists in, in the country. We're, we're delighted that he's, he's with us. And uh, as we do convince all these people that we have a problem, we'll begin to get them to consider more free market approaches to, uh, to our money system. I do have one thing. Maybe it would be embarrassing to mention this, George, but you know, as an adjunct, he did author a uh, study for Cato a couple of years ago in 2010, co-authored with his uh, dissertation advisor, Larry White, who's at George Mason University, and there was a pretty big error in this paper, George, I might point out. This was the uh, study, you may remember, it was called, Has the Fed Been a Failure? And I don't know how the copy editors missed this, but that question mark was supposed to be an exclamation point, Has the Fed Been a Failure? Thank you, Peter. Uh, uh, thank you all for giving me uh, an opportunity to talk to you today about the Fed. Uh, in his earlier remarks, Peter uh, noted, uh, as you all know, that the United States was founded as a place where people could enjoy the greatest possible liberty. The Federal Reserve, on the other hand, at least according to Fed officials and, alas, uh, many economists, uh, was founded because liberty 
individual liberty proved to be inconsistent with financial stability. That is the founding myth, at least, of the Fed. My immediate goal today is to refute that founding myth, but of course uh, I wish to refute it with a more overarching goal in mind, which is that of convincing you that we not only could have a well-working free market-based financial system today, but that we could have had one long ago. And I want to tell you why it ended up that we didn't take that route. Now, what is certainly true is that in the decades leading to the Federal Reserve's establishment, the United States economy suffered from a series of financial crises. Pretty serious ones, but I hasten to add, not more serious than some of the crises we've had since the Fed. These culminated in the great panic of 1907, uh, which made it perfectly clear to everyone who wasn't already convinced that something had to be done to make the U.S. financial system more stable. And as you know, what was done was the, to the creation of the Federal Reserve System through the passage of the Federal Reserve Act in late 1913. Now, what I want to do is to explain to you that that act was neither uh, a necessary nor a very good response to the financial crises that preceded the Fed's establishment. If I had time, I'd love to go back to the days before the Civil War in order to make as uh, complete as possible a refutation of the common belief that before the Fed we had a laissez-faire free market or, if you like, free-for-all monetary system where banks were essentially unregulated. I don't have time to talk about what, what went on before the Civil War. I'm going to have to start with the developments during the Civil War, which were the ones that at least proximately set the stage for the financial crises that came after. Now, wars are expensive, and the Civil War was a very expensive war, and one of the ways in which the Union government chose to finance that war was by intervening in some very important ways in the U.S. financial system. One way that you've all probably heard about was uh, the Treasury's decision to issue greenbacks, that is, uh, paper money, despite the constitutional clauses that would have seemed to prohibit such, and uh, this paper money was used directly to pay the Union government's expenses. But another intervention that took place alongside that for our purposes is even more important was the passage of the National Currency Act and subsequent National Bank Act, which was an amendment of the original act. This is what created nationally chartered banks. Not just one, like the first and second U.S. banks uh, of the past, but many nationally chartered banks. There was a catch, though. Anyone under these rules who could start, an, could have a national bank, could establish one. However, if that bank wanted to issue currency, and remember in those days, all paper currency, apart from the greenbacks I just mentioned, was supplied by banks, any bank that wanted to issue currency, any national bank, could do so only if it backed that currency 110% with U.S. government bonds. Now, why would they have that requirement? Of course, 
it's because this is a fiscal measure. It's not about improving the monetary system. It's about generating revenue for the war. Oh, of course, it was predicated on the assumption that state-chartered banks, the only kind that had existed just before the war, would all convert to national charters. They didn't seem to want to do so, at least not in large numbers, but the government took care of that with a prohibitive tax on state bank notes it passed after the National Bank Acts, a 10% tax that made it no longer profitable to be a note-issuing state bank. That got a lot of them to convert, with the exception of a few. The system almost died. All right. Well, it turns out this regulatory requirement for issuing currency tying it to the availability of U.S. government bonds is one of several crucial factors that led to the crises that in turn led to the Fed's establishment. Another one was the lack of branch banking. National banks were not allowed to have branches at all until after the, sometime after the Fed's establishment. And, of course, it's only in, since the 90s that they've been able to branch nationwide. One consequence of this is that if banks wanted, uh, apart from those in New York City, wanted access to the major money market in New York, the only way they could do it was by establishing correspondent relationships with other banks and ultimately with banks in New York City. Access to the New York market was desirable because when there wasn't a heavy demand for currency and credit in the countryside, which typically was the case except in the harvest season, well, there were better opportunities to invest money in New York. Mind you, if the banks could have branched nationwide like they do today, they could have had branch offices in New York and could have tapped that market directly, and then when they wanted the funds in the countryside for the harvest, they would just take them back, no problem. But in this arrangement, without branching, they had to have correspondent relationships. Now, the national banking laws actually encouraged it, encouraged this correspondent banking. Main Street banks, that is country banks, could establish accounts in so-called central reserve cities, Chicago being one of them. There were others added to the list later on. And count some of those uh, correspondent balances as part of their reserves. The central reserve cities, in turn, could keep correspondent accounts in Wall Street and count those towards their legal reserves. So you could end up with three banks all looking upon the same $1 worth of gold as belonging to them. Now, this was all well and fine, uh, in normal circumstances. But here's what happened. Every harvest season, the country would, countryside would need uh, reserves with which to finance lending and to issue currency to people uh, who were engaged in the harvest. And that would put pressure on Wall Street. Wall Street, on the off-season, would be using the funds acquired from the rest of the country to, to, to make call loans for the stock market. Very lucrative business. But then in the harvest season, they'd have to call back those loans. Well, usually they were able to do it. But if there happened to be some disturbance in New York that caused stocks to crash, then they couldn't call those loans back. And then you would have a crisis both in New York and in the countryside due to the shortage of currency. So this correspondent banking system combined with the national banking laws restricting currency issue was very unstable. It was lucrative to Wall Street for the most part, but it also had the cost of generating periodic crises. This, this situation is very important for developments to follow. That's just the harvest season. This is a panic. We'll just skip ahead quickly. During the panics, 
Uh, when banks in the countryside and in New York found that they were short of reserves, that is, when, uh, when it happened that the demand for currency and credit uh, came at, uh, uh, at the expense of New York banks that could not call back their loans to the stock market, you got terrible currency shortages. And as a result of this, to get around the national banking laws, various banks and clearinghouse institutions, which were in charge of settling accounts among banks back then, as the Fed does today for the most part, issued all kinds of emergency currency. They did this during the panic of 1907, but also in the preceding panic of 1903. They had to get around those Civil War laws that said banks could only issue currency if they held national government bonds as security. And they did this by issuing what they called cashier's checks, but in round numbers, or by issuing clearinghouse certificates. They gave names to this stuff that were designed to get around the requirement of having to back the currency with bonds. Now, the reason they couldn't back it with bonds, I'll show you in a moment, was that from 1870 onwards, the federal government did something that you all wish it would do more often today, but that it hardly ever does. It ran government surpluses, and it used the surpluses to retire its debt. So currency was becoming scarcer and scarcer because the bonds needed to back it were actually getting really hard to find. Now, here's the thing. All of these crises that I just described were avoidable. They were traceable to the regulations I've mentioned, the restrictions on currency banks' ability to issue their own circulating currency, the requirement of bond backing, the lack of branch banking, and the fact that correspondent banking sent funds to New York in certain times of the year and then wanted them all back at others. Canada offered a fascinating contrast with its banking system where banks could branch freely, they could issue notes on the same terms that banks issued or created deposits. There was no special regulation of banks in Canada. It was pretty close to what we call a free or free market banking system. The one limitation, which wasn't it wasn't a minor one, was that entry into Canadian banking was not free. In fact, around the time we're talking about, there were only about 36 Canadian banks, but they had thousands of branches nationwide. Canada had no crises in the period of the last uh, decades of the 19th and first decades of the 20th century. It had no crises. It had no instability. You could read newspapers back then, that commented regularly on the success of Canada's system. This is important because it was a living demonstration of the fact that financial stability could be had by having freer banking and financial markets rather than by making them less free. Here's a chart that kind of tells a, uh, nicely the story of the differences between the two systems. The top, less jagged line which refers to the left-hand scale, shows what's happening to the quantity of national bank currency in the United States from 1880 to 1907. As you can see, it's actually shrinking between 1880 and 1890. There's less than half as much currency in the country in 1990 than in 1880. That's really perverse because we are a rapidly growing economy. 
But that's because it's getting more and more expensive to acquire the scarce bonds that are needed to back national banknotes. There's a relaxation of the rules later that allows some expansion. But look at what's happening in Canada. There you see that the supply of currency, instead of shrinking, is tending to grow. More importantly, you see those spikes? That's the harvest season. It's showing how the supply of currency naturally expands with the harvest and naturally contracts when it's over. Whereas in the U.S. system, you get tightening of credit every harvest season or you get a full-fledged crisis if things go bad in New York for any reason. All right. Again, the success of the Canadian system is entirely due to the fact that it has banks that are more or less free to issue currency and branch as they please. It's a system modeled after the old Scottish banking system, which was equally successful in an earlier time. It was only natural, as you might guess, for some advocates of reform to want to replicate a Canadian-style system in the United States to create financial stability by deregulating the U.S. financial system. One of the people who was behind this was a representative from New Jersey named Charles Fowler. He tried dozens of times to pass legislation that would create a freer banking system and solve the problem of crises in the United States uh, that way. He was opposed, though, by several important uh, 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 critics of financial freedom. William Jennings Bryan, for example, hated the idea of letting banks, private institutions, supply the nation's currency. As you all know, he favored free silver and also greenbacks, anything except private bank-supplied currency. But an equally, if not more important, opponent was a Republican senator named Nelson Aldrich. He was the most powerful senator in uh, Congress at that time, particularly when the Republicans were in power as they were in the years leading up to Wilson's election. Nelson was a classic case of a, I mean, uh, Aldrich was a classic case of a crony capitalist. He was very much in the pockets of uh, the Morgans and the Rockefellers, and it was Aldrich who took control after 1907 of legislation that created a National Monetary Commission charged with coming up with a way of reforming the U.S. monetary system to make it stable. As many of you know, rather than running the commission openly and letting its members determine what reform would take place, Aldrich arranged a secret meeting at Jekyll Island with a bunch of representatives of the leading New York banks. This is one of those conspiracy theories that happens to be true, and it was kept secret, by the way, until the 1930s. Now, remember, these New York bankers, they profited tremendously from the correspondent banking system that sent reserves the way of New York and allowed those reserves to be used to support call, uh, lending to the stock market. The plan that the Republicans came up with, the so-called Aldrich Plan, which was purportedly from the National Monetary Commission, but was really the one hatched by this little cabal, uh, was designed to see to it that whatever reform took place, it would not destroy the correspondent balance business that New York banks were profiting from. And that meant it wouldn't challenge the restrictions on branch banking. Instead, they proposed a national reserve association, essentially a central bank, that would be empowered to issue currency when national banks couldn't. It was essentially the plan that would later take shape in the Federal Reserve System. 
But the reason this plan was put together was not because it was the best and most obvious reform, the best solution to the financial instability in the U.S. system, but simply because it was a solution that would protect the interests of the major New York banks. Now, the Aldrich group ran into a little bit of a hitch when Woodrow Wilson was elected because of the split of the Republican vote between Taft and Roosevelt. But an interesting thing happened. Even though the Democrats were, if anything, more opposed to the idea of a central bank than Republicans were, the Aldrich plan's essential ingredients were incorporated into their own Federal Reserve Act. How did that happen? Well, there are a number of reasons, starting with the fact that Wilson's administration didn't have a clue what to do about currency reform. They hired an economist, Wilson did, named Parker Willis, the fellow on the left. Willis happened to have taught a couple of, Wils- uh, a couple of the uh, uh, sons of Wilson's leading person in the banking uh, uh, committee. But Willis was a student of J. Lawrence Laughlin, who was the chief, one of the chief advocates of the Aldrich Plan, so he just copied the same ideas in the Federal Reserve Act, and essentially the New York bankers got just what they wanted, even though it was a Democratic bill that gave it to them. Not only did the Federal Reserve Act protect and preserve the special interests of the New York banking community, it actually led to a substantial increase in correspondent balances in New York uh, because now you had effective government insurance that those banks in New York had access to through the Federal Reserve's emergency lending provisions. Speculative lending on the call market took shape in greater amounts than ever before. The Wall Street bankers got a reform that was exactly what they, uh, was more indeed than they could have hoped for. But what sort of reform was this from the point of view of financial stability? It was a very poor reform. Uh, My colleagues uh, who uh, Peter referred to in the study that he mentioned and I have shown that financial stability did not improve with the establishment of the Federal Reserve Act. In fact, financial stability overall became much worse. There were more financial or rather banking crises in the first 10 years of the Federal Reserve's establishment, sorry, in the first 20 years, than there had been in the preceding 20 years. And the overall stability of output was reduced rather than increased. By the way, even if you take the Great Depression years out of the sample, the stability of the U.S. economy does not improve markedly after the Fed's establishment compared to the stability before, despite all of the instability caused by the pre-Fed system for the reasons I've explained. Canada's system, on the other hand, had zero banking failures in the Great Depression in the early years more proof that that system was a really robust approach to financial stability. By the way, Canada still had no central bank in the early years of the Depression. It created one in 1935 for entirely political reasons I can go into during the question period if you're interested. It wasn't because the Canadian system had proved incapable of dealing relatively well with the Depression. Canada suffered terribly from the Depression, but it wasn't because its banking and monetary system failed. It's because it had lost its major export market, which is us. Now, 
The irony of all this is that many of the many of the troublesome some of, at least some of the troublesome legal re- restrictions that existed that caused those crises before the Fed's establishment have since gone by the wayside. As I mentioned, finally in the 1990s, we allowed our banks to branch, which we should have done a long time ago. And you can see that the number of banks declined dramatically once branching was allowed. There's still thousands of them, but the number is falling all the time. Alas, it's also falling because of too big to fail that's leading to a lot of artificial consolidation. On the other hand, the very existence of the Federal Reserve has become itself now one of the chief causes of financial instability. And that, of course, is a very tragic outcome of the decision, or rather of the success of Nelson Aldrich and his gang of wresting control of the financial reform movement back in 1907. Today, I would submit one of the chief causes of financial instability in our system is the doctrine of too big to fail, which, of course, is a doctrine that allows the Federal Reserve to hold out the hope of its intervention to any sufficiently large firm that finds itself in trouble, no matter how reckless its conduct may have been that led it there. And unless we can rein this in, we can't have financial stability today. However, it doesn't follow that, in principle, free markets can't achieve financial stability today just as they might have achieved it back in 1907 if only they'd been given a chance. We've always had the basis in markets, in financial markets, for self-regulation. We had it in 1907, and we still have it now. The, The only difference is that the nature of the interventions that have to be countered have changed. In 1907, it was a matter of letting banks issue their own currency free of government bond backing and of allowing them to branch freely. Those two measures alone would have been sufficient to give us a very robust and stable financial system. Today, the challenge of achieving a free and stable financial system is much more complicated than it was back then. First of all, we no longer have the gold standard. And although getting back to the gold standard today is, uh, uh, is possible, it's very, very difficult to conceive of how we could uh, engineer that step for reasons I won't go into now, but that I am happy to try and elaborate during the question period. That means that we have to tame a fiat dollar in order to have a, a solid foundation for a free financial system to work upon, and that is a big challenge. Taming the fiat dollar, though, that is, taking, uh, it, removing it from the Fed's discretionary control, is only part of what needs to be done to reform the system today. We also have to make sure that the Fed can't engage in the sort of emergency lending that allows firms to think that they're too big to fail or that otherwise creates moral hazard in the financial system. The other reforms that would be necessary all just amount to a general liberalization of banking freedom. Because once you take the Federal Reserve out of the equation, well, you'd want to also rein in some other regulators, like the FDIC, then there's no reason why freedom in the financial system can't be expected to produce good results. I know that the the current belief is that Bernanke's Fed 
in, with its interventions during the financial crisis and since, has helped save us from an even deeper recession. I hope that this audience doesn't need to be convinced that there's a much different perspective one can take on that. I've been writing a series of articles for my blog, uh, the Center's blog uh, called Alt-M, talking about what really happened in the crisis and how Bernanke's Fed actually made things much worse. In any event, unless we can counter the founding myth behind the Fed, unless people start to understand why that institution was created and how we could have done something much better to achieve financial stability, we're going to have a hard time reforming the system today. We must counter the conventional wisdom about the Fed having been a necessary answer to financial instability in the past if we want to have a better answer than the Fed, a better solution than the Fed uh, for avoiding financial instability in the future. I think I'll stop right there. And I've got lots of time for questions, which is how I like it. Yes, um, thank you for your very convincing analysis. Uh, we have a huge problem right now, which is the fact that um, during this presidential uh, campaign season, there is absolutely nobody uh, making the case that you just made. And the most commonly accepted belief is that the financial crisis of 2007-8 was caused by out-of-control uh, financial institutions, banks, greedy banks, etc. Nobody is explaining that the source, what the source of the problem was, which means that nobody is going to do anything different in the future. I mean, journalists don't understand this at all. Sorry. Well, I, I, I'm afraid I, I agree that that is the problem. And that's why our center is set up to try to make inroads against the conventional wisdom about financial instability and its causes. Uh, the problem is that if you just start with current the current crisis, this myth of the Fed and the myth of historical instability is always in the background. And, and uh, that's why I find that unless you start at the, with the basics, unless you start at the beginning and start to clear up what happened in the past, it's very hard to tell a story that people find convincing and coherent about what's been going on in the present. Because you're always meeting with this view, well, wait a minute, if the Federal Reserve is, uh, is such a culprit in this recent crisis, why was it set up in the first place? What about what happened before? And so I, because I run into that all the time, I want to keep returning to history. Now, I should mention that this talk is actually based on a, a pretty long uh, paper that I've written that I'll, we'll publish as a policy analysis on the founding of the Fed. And that paper is, in turn, one of several responses I've been working on to a new book by Roger Lowenstein called America's Bank, which, sadly, is... It's a very well-written account of the Fed's origins, but it's one that repeats all the usual myths. 
One of the frustrating things about Lowenstein's book is precisely that it's, it's well-informed, but because he starts with the assumption that the Federal Reserve was a good idea and the only way to get out of the financial problems of uh, pre-1913, what he ends up doing is running around putting white hats on anybody who contributed to the Fed's founding, including Aldrich and his gang, and black ones on anyone like Charles Fowler, that Republican congressman, who were arguing against a central bank and for other solutions. And it's very sad to read because Aldrich, well, let's not put too fine a point on it. He was a creep. He was an absolute creep in the pockets of the Wall Street, uh, uh, his Wall Street cronies. And his, he, did, he had no interest until 1907 in reform. In fact, up till that time, all he did was block every reform proposal. So what happened in 1907 to make him become a champion of reform? What happened simply was that that panic made it clear to everyone that some reform was going to happen. So suddenly his task changed in his eyes from that of opposing reform to that of controlling it, which he did very effectively by by wresting control of the National Monetary Commission and by secretly uh, uh, authoring uh, or having his Wall Street friends author a reform that was presented to the public as a well-thought-out, rational solution to the, to the problems. Now, anyway, the point is, we have a big, a, a very hard road to hoe. We've got to counter a lot of conventional wisdom, piles of it. It comes at you faster than you can deal with it. Today, the New York Times has an article attacking the gold standard and saying, how, uh, how dumb all these uh, Republicans are who have nice things to say about it. And not long ago was another article about how, oh, it's awful to impose a monetary rule on the Fed. Ben Bernanke's memoirs have already mentioned. It took me weeks just to read the darn things, and it's taking me even longer to reply. Uh, it's, it, is, it is a flood. It's a flood. We, let's not kid ourselves. But we've got to start somewhere, and I do believe that it's, in my case, I, I write about what's, I'm writing about what went wrong, what the Fed really did during the recent crisis, but I'm also trying to counter these founding myths because I'm pretty sure that it's like removing a cancer. If you just attack recent Fed actions and don't go after the founding myths, that thing's just going to metastasize again. It's, it's not going to go away until people can see the big picture of financial freedom and how it can work. Take your pick. <laughs> there's a gentleman over there who's, and there's, there's a cluster of them right around there. Should the Fed have bailed out Lehman Brothers, and would it have made a substantial difference in the crisis, do you think? No, it shouldn't have. The, lack, the Fed's not, decision to not bail out Lehman Brothers was one of the few nice things it did, proper things it did during the crisis. There was a, a radical Russian poet who... Uh, who wrote after the Titanic's uh, sinking that the sinking of ti- the Titanic had given him immense, uh, what was the word, it's given him immense pleasure because it, it reminded him that there was still an ocean. <laughs> well, whatever you think about that, when Layman's wasn't rescued, it gave me immense pleasure because it reminded me that there was still a market in, uh, for financial services, a real functioning market where firms that were badly managed could lose. It didn't last long. But let's remember that 
the, prob- what the, the calamity that was the layman's collapse might never have happened if they hadn't bailed out Bear Stearns, which they shouldn't have done. But there's a subtle point I want to make about that bailout, and I've written about this on Altem as well. If you want to read what I have to say about all these rescues, uh, look for my article, The Courage to Say No, or no, it's The Courage to Refuse. I think that's what I ended up calling it on Altem. And while you're there, subscribe and comment because I want to hear from all of you. Anyway, um, it wasn't just that they bailed out Bear. It's that when they bailed out Bear, they, they said, they didn't say, we're bailing out Bear because it's solvent but illiquid. That's all. It's because it's a good firm, hasn't done anything wrong. The classical last resort le- lending rules say that you should only bail out a firm if it is demonstrably solvent with very good collateral, blah, blah, blah. Instead, they bailed out Bear and they said, all of them, Geithner, uh, Bernanke, you name it, Folsom, it, we're bailing out because it's too systematically important, that is, too big to fail. That was a signal to Layman's and all the others that, oh, you know, because Layman's is bigger, right, 50% bigger. You're off the hook, fella. You're covered. The creditors are cool. They're not going to run. Layman doesn't have to prepare for bankruptcy. On the contrary, it's going to go in deeper and deeper and deeper in the hopes that it might recover its profits by taking even more risks. Absolute disaster. Absolute disaster. So it's, it's bad enough to bail out an insolvent firm. It's, and I believe that Bayer was not solvent according to the strict requirements of classical last resort lending. It's worse to bail it out and say you're doing it because it's important or big, because that's a signal, a very bad one, for every even bigger and even more important firm out there that may be in trouble and may otherwise need to do something about it. What's wrong with this side of the room? What's wrong with you all? What is your opinion of the alternative currency, Bitcoin? I... I, I think Bitcoin is fascinating from uh, a strictly economic point of view. Uh, In that sense, I'm bullish on it, right? Please don't interpret me as saying that you can count on the value going back up or anything like that. Bitcoin uh, is already used, uh, proving its usefulness in, in, in certain kinds of transactions, particularly remittances. That is, if you want to send money to somebody abroad, as many uh, uh, workers do, right? Bitcoin's a lot cheaper than uh, 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 sending it through Western Union and the other means that had existed up to this time. It's considerably cheaper. I mean, it really works for that. As a, the, the, the bigger question, of course, is what sort of currency would Bitcoin be if it really were generally adopted currency? What kind of standard of value would it supply us? Because remember, Bitcoin is a stand, if it's to the extent that it's currency at all, it's a real standard currency. That is, it's not based on anything else. It's not convertible into something else. It is a unique monetary standard. I call it an example of a synthetic commodity. Because like a real commodity, there's only so much of it out there, right? And then you're mining it, as they say, producing it. In this case, up to 21 million coins, and then that's that. So um, what kind of commodity is this as uh, judged as the basis for a real monetary system? Well, it's, it's one of 
the, the merits of which are rather doubtful because the absolute supply at some point, of course, can no, no longer grow. Now, I know you hard money types are thinking, oh, that's great. But remember that even under the gold standard, we never had a case where there was no gold output and no expansion of the supply of money. We didn't have to worry about the kind of overexpansion that fiat money systems produce. But I think we, we had good reason to be grateful for that more limited expansion that a gold standard system did provide for. This is apart from the fact that gold could move easily between different countries to meet exceptional demands here and there. There was always gold output, and that limited the extent to which uh, increasing demand for real money balances had to be accommodated by deflation. Some deflation, some deflationary accommodation is fine. I've written about this. But there are limits beyond which it's not. Specifically, if, if the growth of the supply of money is so limited that <clears throat> total spending is declining over time, it can be very difficult on firms and individuals to deal with that. I mean, basically, your average firm has got less uh, 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 revenue than its outlays. Now, you can try to plan on that, but it can be tough. So, um, so the gold standard, even the gold standard, was a more easy monetary system than a, a Bitcoin system would be if, if widely adopted, and I'm not sure we would be happy with that Bitcoin system. Can we create cyber currencies that are a little bit more friendly than that, macroeconomically speaking? I believe it's possible. The technology is just fascinating, and I think it provides all sorts. It opens up a world of possibilities. We shouldn't just judge uh, Bitcoin's uh, uh, importance by the specific features of Bitcoin itself. Oh, here's one right up here. Here comes the mic. Of the major countries of the world have all have a central bank, and the euro is in a lot of trouble. The yen is kind of iffy, and now the Chinese central bank is got their themselves and do a, a new format so it's acceptable and I know the central banks are supposed to be all independent for the countries but suddenly I think they they are not independent from each other they pay attention to each other and December 10th or something the Federal Reserve is considering raising the interest rates and all of these currencies are having heart attacks over this I don't understand any of that maybe you could comment Yes, of course, uh, but you're absolutely right, first of all. Uh, if the Federal Reserve sneezes, the other central banks get a cold. And the regulations are, uh, the monetary policy of the United States particularly uh, has a great deal of influence on what other central banks do. Now, part of this is just a natural desire on the part of central bankers to limit fluctuations in exchange rates because those fluctuations are, are troublesome to the business community. One of the virtues of the international gold standard was that it was a system, the only really workable one that lasted for any length of time, of fixed exchange rates internationally. It's one of the reasons why people who poo-poo the gold standard, frankly, don't know what they're talking about. We never had a system with this that combined the degree of stability of exchange rates with the general degree of stability to the gold, that the gold standard achieved. Um, now... Why is it significant that the central banks tend to move it somewhat in lockstep, particularly in response to the Fed's actions? Well, take, for example, the, the subprime boom and bust. 
It's common for apologists for the Fed, Ben Bernanke among them, to say, well, obviously this couldn't, easy money on the Fed's part couldn't be to blame because you had these booms in all these other countries. Well, it, it, it can be to blame if what you say is true, which is that the other countries tended to ease when the Fed eased or tended to pursue an equally a roughly equally easy policy. That would explain why booms tend to, that's one reason why booms tend to be internationally correlated. So it is very much a true phenomenon, and it's just one more aspect of, of the problem of central banking. Of course, it would be even worse if a single central bank were established for the whole world, because then, of course, it, you wouldn't even need to have this monkey see, monkey do tendency, and, and uh, you'd have put all your eggs in one basket. I guess we're out of time. Thank you all very much. George, thanks so much. Um, we're going to uh, leave this room. We're going to have a reception uh, across the foyer in the French room. This is the part where uh, I used to be able to have drinks, and now I'm not because I used to be a donor, and now I'm a donor and an employee. Uh, but you're welcome to have a drink. And um, join us for lunch afterwards uh, when Terrence Keeley will speak. Pat Michaels was pointed out earlier is in the, uh, in the audience, so if you have questions about his work, the Cato Center for the Study of Science, and particularly in the context of the, uh, the, the Paris Conference, I think he'll be willing to take questions. Ron Bailey is going to be uh, selling and signing books, so again, the holiday season. Um, I think he'd be, be happy to sign, sign books for you um, at, the, at the reception. Uh, take all your belongings, though, because we're not going to be returning to this room, and thanks so much for your attention. Appreciate it.